preaching on a doctrine that um, a bit controversial. Some people struggle with it. But the Bible says that all Scripture is inspired of God. Amen? Amen. And it's all useful and profitable for teaching and correction. So today we're going to look at the encouraging and beautiful and wonderful and biblical doctrine of election. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you today, Lord God. We thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord. We thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you that in eternity past, God, that you loved us. (sighs) Amazing. You loved us, Lord God. And you sent your son, God, the elect one, the chosen one, the precious one, to die for us, Lord God. That we might become sons and daughters of God. And this was your plan in eternity past before we ever existed, Lord. And you know each one of us by name. And you called us. And you saved us. And you washed us in the son of your blood, the blood of your son, Lord. And so today we come into this house, lifting up our hands, worshiping you for what you've done, Lord. And so we thank you, God. And right now we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open up our hearts. Open up our minds, illuminate the truth to us, and encourage us, God, with this doctrine of election that you created. It was in your mind. This is your word, Lord. And we want to be encouraged by it today. So bless your people. Bless me as I preach, and let Christ be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So... Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace Be multiplied to you. Now turn to the very last verse in the same book. 1 Peter chapter 5. It's actually second to the last verse. Verse 13. And actually verse 12. By Salvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true Grace of God, stand firm in it. Verse 13. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet everyone with a holy kiss of love. Like bookends, Peter opens up his book, which we're going to see who the audience was, with the doctrine of election. He opens up, Speaking about the elect. And he closes speaking about the chosen who is likewise in Babylon. Likewise chosen. So election are like bookends to Peter's letter. And we see that as we begin to really look into the letter. We see that election is the driving theme that Peter is is using to encourage Christians who are suffering. The book of 1 Peter is about what? Suffering. If you read the book, you know, Peter's reaching out to a group of people who are suffering. But really, it's more about suffering. It's about God and what God has done in Christ 
to bring people to himself and how the doctrine of election that God choosing out a people for himself, calling out. And Peter uses this theme throughout the book to encourage Christians who are struggling. Has anyone ever thought of the doctrine of election as something to encourage you when you're struggling? People say, give me something practical. Well, Peter thought election was so practical that he used it to encourage Christians who are facing severe trials. So, sorry, my iPad just went off. So, Peter begins... And starts with election. Now before we jump in, I want to give you a background. Um, Peter was writing to a group of Christians who were living in the five Roman provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This was located in today what is called modern day Turkey. In the northern part of modern day Turkey along the borders of the Black Sea. And these, this was like the farthest uh, uh, reaching out of the, uh, from the Roman Empire. It was, on, it was like the outskirts of town. They were like living in the boondocks. They were like hillbillies living up in the hills, you know? Far from the center of, of Rome. Far from the center of Antioch, which was at that time one of the uh, most uh, uh, um, center of Christianity. Far from Jerusalem. Far from where all the action was going on. These people were like up in the hills, up in the mountains, far away. In fact, um, we don't even know how they became Christians. You know, Peter's writing to them. They're, f- they're facing uh, severe persecution. And they're not really facing persecution from government. They're not facing like death, though some have died. It's more persecution from family members, from friends, from co-workers, right? From society, And we're going to see why that is. Peter wants to strengthen their faith and encourage them to stand in the midst of suffering. So we don't know how they became Christians, right? Aside from Asia and the southern parts of Galatia, we have no New Testament record of any apostle or anyone visiting that region. The closest we have is uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when all the nations gathered around. It says um, that there were people from um, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia that were listening to Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. So maybe these were Jews or maybe Gentiles who converted to Judaism, who were at the Feast of Pentecost, who heard Peter's preaching. Maybe they got saved and went back to these towns and started churches. Everyone guesses because we don't really know. This is all we know. There were Christians there. And they were suffering. Um, Paul tried to enter Bithynia in Acts. In Acts 16.7. And Jesus forbid him. In Acts 16.7 it says, They, Paul and Silas and Timothy, attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. We don't know why he didn't allow them to go. But that's the only information we have in that region. Within Scripture. We have... Information without scripture. So they were suffering. That's all we know. There was, there was a church. They were scattered throughout that region. And they were suffering. So why were they suffering? What was the reason that they were suffering for? Well, Christians were hated throughout all the Roman Empire. You know that, right? Christians weren't celebrated. You know, Christians were hated. And they were called haters of mankind. That's how they were known. Haters of mankind. 
Um, Tacitus, he's a Roman historian. And he was a senator as well. And he lived in the Roman, he lived, uh, you know, in the Roman Empire during that time. And so he, we have his uh, works, his annals of uh, Tacitus. And he wrote about the persecution of Nero, who persecuted Christians in AD 64. And that's around the time that Peter wrote this book. And though this Neronian persecution that happened in Rome was very severe, people were killed, tortured, put to death in most horrific ways, this torture and this persecution was confined mainly to the Roman Empire, uh, to uh, the city of Rome. It wasn't like empire-wide. But all through the empire, when we read the book of Acts, Paul's going through towns. How many times did Paul get beaten? How many times did people get arrested, stoned? So that was just normal everyday life for a Christian. You're living in a hostile world. You go in, start talking about Jesus. You start offending other gods. You catch a beating. That's how it was. People didn't want to hear that. You know? So we know that this, this persecution in Rome was concentrated to Rome. But listen to the attitude that society had and their ideas about Christians. This kind of gives us an idea. Um, so Nero burnt down Rome. How many know the story that Nero, he wanted to rebuild Rome his own way. So he set a fire and burnt many sections of the city down. And then supposedly he was playing a fiddle as it was going on. And people began to catch on and said, that was Nero. That was Nero. So Nero began to feel the heat. And he said, you know what? I need a scapegoat. Who's the most hated group in the These Christians. They did it. They're always talking about fire and brimstone. They're the ones that did it. So now everyone turned against the Christians. And it's funny. One of the sections was the only section that didn't burn down was a Christian section. So the people right away think, okay, these Christians did it. But listen to what Tacitus says. Consequently, to rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Guilty of what? Burning Rome? No. Of being Christians. Then an immense multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of firing the city, but for their hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their death. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. Or they were nailed to crosses, or they were doomed to the flames and burnt to, to serve as nightly illuminations when daylight had expired. According to Tacitus, the, the citizens of Roman Empire despised Christians. They hated them. They thought them to be haters of mankind. So, Peter is writing to people living in the five Roman provinces. And though, again, they weren't experiencing the severe persecution, they were experiencing verbal persecution, insults, ostracization, marginalization. They were experiencing all these daily pressures. Sometimes verbal abuse is worse than physical abuse. Nonstop, daily Constant verbal abuse day after day, week after week, hour after hour. It wears, yes. it wears on you, doesn't it? It's yes. tough. And we know that these people were experiencing that. 
And so one commentary gives us a color to what these people were going through. Listen to this. This is specifically that area in Asia Minor. When missionaries arrived in these provinces, people listened to the gospel and they believed. And as a result, their lifestyles changed. First and foremost, they stopped worshipping the various gods of the empire. They stopped worshipping the gods of the city the gods of the trade guilds, the gods of the family, and instead worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone else was saying, Caesar is Lord. Christians were saying, Jesus is Lord. That made them look, number one, unpatriotic. You've got to understand something about emperor worship. Most people who did it, didn't believe that the emperor was a god, but they wanted peace. They said, look, we live in the Roman Empire, let's pinch salt and everything's fine. Meanwhile, you know, I'm just adding him to another one of my plethora of gods. I have 10 million, so no big deal. Christians wouldn't do that. And so, to not worship the emperor was kind of like, imagine yourself right after 9-11. You're in the World Series. You're in the bleachers at Yankee Stadium. Remember they were playing after 9-11? And you're in the bleachers and they get up and they start singing the national anthem. And everyone in the bleachers put their hands on their heart and they begin singing the national anthem. You stand up, turn around, break out a uh, a Turkish flag or something else and start screaming your national anthem. Right? With your back turned to the flag. How well do you think that would go over? That would look like an insult. Right? People would take that as disrespectful. That's an insult. How dare you? Well, when Christians began to worship Jesus, it was insulting to these people. What's wrong with you? This is the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord around here. You and your Jesus get out of here. You're causing waves. Shut up. Be quiet. Stop. But they wouldn't. So they were unpatriotic. Right? Number two, they were disloyal to the city. Since they would not make... They wouldn't take part of the civil activities. And listen, everything during those days was involved in worship. Everything they did revolved around worshiping of the gods. If you went on a picnic, you had a picnic god and you worshiped them. You know, if you went to a ball game, you had a sports god. Whatever you did, there was a god and family worship revolved around the family idols and gods. So they were looked at as disloyal to the city, unprofessional. Why? Because they wouldn't join a union. Why? Because to join a union, you had to worship the god of the trade guild. And they didn't want to do that, right? They were haters of families. Like I said, they had a family picnic. I'm not going. Why? Because you're worshiping that statue. I don't do that. I worship Jesus, right? So by and large, Christians were looked upon as a menace to society. The reason why they were being persecuted is simply because they worshiped Jesus Christ. Now listen, the name Christian, we look at that name differently today. But for them, that name was a derogatory term. Christians didn't call themselves Christians in the first century. They were known by the way. The way. Christians was given to them at Antioch by people who were ridiculing them. So Christians didn't call themselves Christians in the first century. That, they took that name on. And, and proudly so. And said, we will be called Christians because we do want to be like Christ. It was like little Christs following them. So it was a derogatory term, 
right? So Peter says this to them in the, in the same letter, right? He says this in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If anyone suffers as a Christian, why were they suffering? Because they put the label of Christian on them. You're one of those Christians. And they began to say, you know what? Yes, I am. I am one of those Christians. And they said, and Peter says, listen, glorify God in that name. They give you that name to shame you. Don't let that name shame you. Embrace it and glorify God that you're being shamed for the name of Christ. And so Christian was a name that we began to embrace. So listen. How many today know that in this country, Christianity was once a very uh, um, prestigious title to be called. If someone was a Christian, people honored that name, right? I remember, you know, that guy's a Christian. People respected that name. Well, he's a Christian. So the name, you know, held some, uh, you know, dignity to it. Not anymore today. How many know when you tell someone you're a Christian today, you're called a bigot, narrow-minded, homophobic, hater, arrogant, you know, the list goes on. So we're living in a time now when being a Christian is almost like that derogatory name. When they say Christian, they're not thinking of the glory of Christ that we follow. They use it as a derogatory. You're a bigoted, narrow-minded person. So we see that even today. How much more in their time? So these Christians were facing physical, not so much physical, but verbal abuse. Um, Family members that once loved them were now shunning them. You know, when they were running around smoking crack and drinking and cursing and fighting and sleeping around and, you know, uh, boozing it up, everyone loved them. The minute they became a Christian, now nobody wants to hang out with them. Now everyone's talking about them. And Peter addresses that. This is what they were facing. This is what the recipients of First Peter were facing. When they were worshiping gods and sleeping around and fighting, coming home with black eyes, drunk. And he's like, yeah, it's my boy. But the minute he started, you know, praising God and get his act together, cleaned up, started feeding homeless people. And he's, you know, living a different life. Now everyone hates him. And listen to what Peter says. He said, for there has already been enough time. This is First Peter 4.4. 4, spent in doing what the pagans choose to do. Carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatries. So they're surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of wild living, and they slander you for it. What's wrong with you, Richie? You used to hang out and get high. Now you're a holy roller? What's your problem? And so they face that day in and day out. Listen, it's easy to go on your job and and get persecuted, isn't it? And come home and have a loving wife and a loving mother and father who are there to love you. But what happens when you come home and it's your husband or it's your wife or it's your child or it's your mother or it's your father that you have to live with and they're the ones persecuting you? That's when things get tough. Sometimes physical persecution is a lot easier to deal with than verbal and mental persecution. So this is who Peter was writing to. And what does he do now? He's writing to them and he wants to encourage them. So what does he do? 
He gives them the doctrine of election. Peter, what are you thinking? Well, we're going to see how encouraging this beautiful biblical doctrine is. Peter, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Peter, an apostle. I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining this. Some people today did not say, you know, Peter didn't really read the book. But I don't know. I'm pretty simple. I read the first word of the book. It says Peter. So I'm pretty sure Fred didn't write it. You know? So I'm going to take what the Bible says. It was written by Peter. Right? So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right? He was Peter, but he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter was one of the three people that were in the inner circle of Jesus. How many know their names? Peter, James, and John. Right? And Peter was the most faithful one. When Peter found himself in trials and temptations, he didn't fold. He stood like a rock around the fire. When a little girl questioned him, do you know Jesus? He was like a rock. Right? No. You're reading the wrong Bible, right? Peter folded. Peter trembled at a little girl who said, I saw you with the soldiers. And he cursed and denied Jesus. How many times? Three times. And he went away and wept bitterly. This is the same Peter now that's going to encourage Christians who are facing the same thing. Verbal abuse, uh, shame, right? Pressure to give in and give up. What happened? Peter experienced the wonderful grace of God. Peter experienced the transformation of the gospel. And this once coward was crucified willingly, but he wanted to be crucified, history tells us, upside down because he didn't want to be crucified because he thought he wasn't worthy to be crucified like Jesus was. And supposedly his wife was crucified next to him. This is church history. It's not verified. But this is what we read throughout church history. And he died for his Lord bravely by the grace of God. So Peter is now reaching out and writing to these people. And he wants to encourage them. And so let's read. Um, verse 1. He says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, there are three words right here that we just want to break down real quick. Elect, exiles, dispersion. All right? Who are the elect? He addresses his audience and calls them the elect. Well, what does that mean, elect? In this country, when you think of elect, what do you think? The president. All right, elections, I think. It, but this word means a lot much more than presidential elections. Um, in the word, the Greek is eklektos, right? And we're going to see what that means. And so he says, to those who are elect, the word election or eklektos is found 22 times, 22 times in the New Testament. It is translated as either elect or chosen. And again, I said the Greek word is eklektos. And what does eklektos mean? Simply means chosen or selected by divine action. So if someone is elect, that means they were chosen or selected by a divine action. Right? The Bible teaches us that election has always been part of God's plan. And we see election in the following two examples. So Peter addresses these Christians who are struggling and he calls them, you are elect. And so Peter is thinking back to the Old Testament. 
But he's also thinking about Jesus as well. Thinking back to the Old Testament. Listen to this. Who is Israel? They were the chosen people of God. The elect. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 says this. I love this verse. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you or elected you to be a people for his treasured possession. Now wait, this can't be right. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You mean out of all the people on the face of the earth, God chose the Jews? That's what he says. Out of all the people, God chose the Jews, the Israelites, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He could have chose Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the Edomites and the and, uh, Jebusites and all the other ites. But he chose Israel. Why? Because he loved them. Why? Because he chose to. <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us why. If you look at their history, there's not many reasons why you would think that God would choose those people. Just like when you look in the mirror, there's not many reasons why God would choose me. <laughs> so Peter is putting on these Christians who are suffering an Old Testament title of the elect. Letting them know that, listen, just like the Jews were God's chosen people, you are God's chosen people. People, God chose you and loves you, and He put His special covenant love on you because He loves you. But then I love this. First Peter chapter two, verses four through seven. Again, Peter's speaking to these people, and listen to what he says about Jesus to these people who are suffering. As you come to him, a living stone, what? Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Peter was writing, Right? To these group of elect Christians. And he was aware of their situation. He was sensitive to their plight that they were being rejected by men. They were being rejected by fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and neighbors and government officials. They were being rejected. And so Peter tells them, listen, you're the elect of God. What do you think they're going to do to you when the elect one, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who is chosen and precious in the eyes of the father was rejected by men? Don't you understand that because God set his affection and his covenant love on you and God sees you as chosen and precious in his sight? Don't you understand that the world is going to hate you as well? Don't you understand that they persecuted Jesus? They're going to persecute you. They hated Christ. They're going to hate you. So he encouraged them by looking back to the Old Testament, saying, you are the elect of God. And looking to Jesus, saying, the elect one was rejected by men. But 
He wanted to encourage them because how many know when you go through trials that you seem to never end? How many, maybe I'm the only one that's been there, but how many have you ever been through some really hard trials where you get to hear that voice, that still small voice? You're not a Christian. God doesn't love you. Look at the mess you made. Has anyone ever heard that or is it just me? Has anyone ever heard that attack from the enemy that makes you want to doubt your salvation? And Peter wants to tell them, listen to me. No. No matter how bad it gets, God loves you. You're precious to Him. You're chosen and elect and God will never let you go. Peter wanted to encourage them in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their trial, that they are the elect of God. Isn't that good to know when you're going through trials and tribulations? That even though you might give up and lose your faith for a little while, that God will never, ever, ever, ever lose a Christian? See, the issue is, can I lose my salvation? The issue is, can God lose a Christian? And He can never lose a Christian. Listen, brothers and sisters, we all are living in Babylon. We all are living in a hostile world. We're all going to find ourselves under attack from family members, from friends, from parents, from society, from co-workers, and sometimes it might get hot. And sometimes God doesn't take you out of the fire, but He gives you grace in it. And while we're going through that, we need to understand that we are the elect chosen of God, that we are precious in His sight, and He loves us. And he's for us, as we're going to see. Exiles. Peter identified these elect as exiles. They're strangers, resident aliens, sojourners. Though they were most likely born and raised in the province that they were living, they no longer felt at home. The minute they came to Christ, I no longer feel at home. In my own house, I don't feel at home. In my own neighborhood, I don't feel like I belong anymore. They were living as strangers and aliens, far from their real home. See, they had an address change when they got saved. Their new address is reserved in heaven. As he goes down in a few verses, he says, we have a treasure reserved in heaven for you. So they were looking to the city whose maker and builder is God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9 and 10. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. Our forefather in the faith, Abraham. Peter was like, listen, you have an address change. You know, you don't feel at home anymore because now you're exiles. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, speaking of Abraham. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. Where did he go to live? In the land of promise. And how did he live in that land? As in a foreign land. Wait a second, Abraham. That's the land of promise. Abraham's, no, it's not. That's temporary. The real land of promise is in heaven where Jesus is going to be. That's the real land of the new city, Jerusalem, where God dwells. This is temporal down here. And so Abraham lived in a land of promise as a foreigner, living in tents with Isaac, Jacob, and Isaac, Jacob, and heirs with him of the promise. For he was looking, what? Forward to a city that had foundations in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. No, on Shore Road with a nice view with a bridge. No, where? Whose designer and builder is God. Peter was pointing the exiles to look away from the 
circumstances. And he said, your treasure is in heaven. Listen, so as exiles, how did Peter tell us to live now? If you read through this book, you're going to see Peter talking to exiles. 1 Peter 1.17. Listen to how he explains our existence on earth. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. You know what Peter says your life is on earth? It's a time of your, your exile. Like you're passing through. Don't get too caught up. It's going on. Nah, nah, nah. Don't get too caught up. Yeah, we, we enjoy the, the, the fruits that God blesses us with. You know, we want to be salt and light and want to try to transform our culture as much as possible and share Christ with people. But don't get caught up so much with trying to be part of this world. We're exile, pilgrims passing through. Don't bang your pen, tent pegs too deep because God's going to pull them up one day. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, 1 Peter 2.11, to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. How do exiles and sojourners live? They don't get so caught up in the pleasures of the world that the world embraces their heart and pulls them away from the love of God. Jesus, what did he say about the dissipations of life and the cares of world? They come in and choke the word. Right? So we need to be careful and understand that we are exiles. Peter exhorts Christians to view the world as a time of just passing through. So Abraham lived as an exile. He encourages us to live as an exile. And listen, there are far too many preachers out here who are doing just the opposite of what Peter's trying to tell us to do. Peter said, you have a treasure reserved in heaven. Focus on the things above. What did Paul the Apostle say? Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated, not on earth. There are far too many TV evangelists who are telling you to take your eyes off of heaven and put it on the here and now. What can I get from God now? What, how much riches can I get from God now? How much treasure can I get from God? And Peter does the opposite. No! You're exiles. You're strangers. Don't get so caught up in this world. Because God is going to destroy it. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. Then he goes on to say, they're exiles and strangers of what? The dispersion. What does that word mean, dispersion? Dispersion. It's a word that means scattered. Like when you take seeds and you scatter the seeds. Peter applies to them the same term that was used to describe Jews who were scattered across the world, who were displaced from their home, the promised land, Because of what? Their sin. But Peter's audience is largely Gentile and not Jewish. And they're scattered not because of their sin. But God has scattered Christians all over the world. He doesn't want us together. He doesn't want all Christians to move to Minneapolis. And and we all live in Minneapolis now. We're all Christians. He wants us scattered all over the face of the earth. To be light and salt and bring the gospel to a dark and dying land. He wants us living in the hostile environment. He doesn't want us to become uh, living in in monasteries, you know, or, or in the backwoods, you know. He wants us out where the people are living. So there are scattered people, right? And they're scattered all along the the northern part of Turkey. And Peter is using this figuratively. To show them that though right now you're a scattered people like the Jews are scattered. Here's a beautiful promise. One day God is going to gather his elect. 
Listen to this, Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31. Then will appear in heaven the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds in heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and what? And they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. The world is not our home, brothers and sisters. One day God will gather the scattered people of God. And I think about that beautiful song. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll say it. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon the face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. Does that excite you? Does that excite you? Do you get encouraged by understanding that we're a scattered, elect, chosen people, but that God is in control, that God is the one who scattered us, and God is the one who's going to gather us, and He hasn't left us by Himself? Now, how did God do all this? I'm closing now. How did God do all this? Peter says, you are elect. You are strangers and pilgrims. You're living in the dispersion. Well, how did I become elect? Did I just decide to, hey, I'm going to get my act together and follow Jesus. That looks like a good idea. You know? No. I don't, you know. So Peter goes and he tells us. Listen to this. Verse 2. Where am I? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here's a word that has been greatly misunderstood. Foreknowledge. How many know what the word foreknowledge means? For means before. And knowledge means knowing. So we would think that foreknowledge means you know something beforehand. Correct? How many ever heard the definition of foreknowledge like this? You were chosen by the foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? That means God looked down the corridors of time and he saw Victor, Victor Carrera and he said, Victor's going to say yes to me. So now I saw Victor, he says yes, so now I'm going to choose Victor and write him in my book. Is that what the Bible teaches about foreknowledge? No. Why is that problematic? First, number one, it suggests that God has to look ahead to learn something that he didn't know. And that's an attack on God's omniscience. God is all-knowing. So God never has to look ahead into the future to see what someone does and then write it down in a book. And then he bases his plans on what man's going to do in 3,000 years. Who's sovereign here? That makes man's will sovereign over God. And so God is just playing off of what man is going to do. And so God is not in control. So that's problematic. Um, Here's what foreknowledge means. It really means for love. It has to do with loving someone. The word carries the connotation of intimacy and love. Listen to what God says in Amos chapter 3 verse 2. Now he's pretty upset with the people right now in Amos 3 2. He's about to judge them. But who is he judging? Listen to the words. He's not judging some strangers or some wicked city, which they were wicked. Listen to the people 
who he's speaking to, his own people. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God's saying, do you understand why I'm punishing you? I revealed myself to you. I chose you out of all the people of the earth. You only have I known. Some Bible versions say, you only have I loved. So what was God saying here? Hey, Gabriel, wow, you only have I loved. I didn't know there were like Egyptians. I had no idea they were living around here. I didn't know there were like Hittites. Ah, you're the only ones I knew. No. He was saying, you're the only ones that I set my covenant love on. You're the only ones out of all the people of the earth that I chose to love. God's choice, not man. God loved them. So, God, foreknowledge means God's love, but it also means foreordained, meaning God doesn't look ahead to see what happens in history. God causes what happens ahead in history. God is not some bystander looking, saying, oh, that's going to happen. God is the one who causes the events of history to play out exactly as he determined. Did someone get saved yesterday? Because God determined that in history past, in eternity past. God is the one who ordained that person to get saved. Listen to this. Acts chapter 2 verse 22. Acts 2.22. Are we there? Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. Who's speaking right here? Whose sermon was this? Peter. Peter is the same one that wrote First Peter. Is the same person that's preaching this sermon in Acts. The term foreknowledge of God appears only two times in all of Scripture. Guess where? In First Peter and in Peter's sermon. Peter knows what he means when he says this. And this is what he means. God didn't look ahead and say, hey, hey, Gabriel, look, they're crucifying Jesus. Well, okay, so now Jesus, you've got to be crucified. I'm sorry, because I looked ahead and saw that happen. No, that's, that's ridiculous. According to God's definite plan and foreordination, Jesus was crucified exactly how God planned. How do you read Isaiah 53 and get around that? It happened according to God's plan. Judas was born to betray Christ and he did exactly according to God's plan. Jesus was crucified exactly according to God's plan. God elected and foreordained the crucifixion of Jesus so that he can save us. God caused it to happen so that one day he can cause us To be saved. It's the doctrine of election. God is the one who's doing it. God is the one who does it. Not us. Jesus was delivered up according to the. Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What does the Bible. Tell us about foreknowledge. What I just read to you. These verses. Peter's letter. You know what I hear. 
I hear the Bible screaming out. God the Father loves you. I hear foreknowledge screaming out. God the Father loves you so much that he chose you in eternity past and nothing, nothing on earth, no devil in hell could ever stop you, a Christian today, from becoming a Christian because God in eternity past loved you. Me? Yes, you. God loved you. God chose you. God cares for you. God is concerned for you. And nothing you can do can stop that. So when we're facing trials and persecutions and temptations, and at times when we're going out of our minds, and we feel abandoned by God, know this, exiled, scattered, suffering Christian, who feels isolated and alone, you are greatly loved by the Father. You are precious and chosen in His sight. He loved you in eternity past. He loved you when you were born. He loved you when you lived a wicked and evil lifestyle. And because of God's foreknowledge and love, He chose you and saved you. Peter ends his greeting with a wonderful truth that the whole Trinity is involved in the process of election. You're chosen by God the Father, sanctified and set apart by God the Spirit, cleansed and sprinkled by God the Son, that we might live a life obedient to Jesus Christ. In the midst of suffering, persecution, fiery trials, know that you are not left alone. This is a wonderful and encouraging doctrine of election. This is what Peter gave to suffering Christians. And the Bible says that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. God loves you. God chose you. And he will never, ever fail you.